My interest in ketamine came in because I've seen so much lack of efficacy with the traditional SSRIs, SNRIs, et cetera, and the cocktails of, you know, five psychotropics that uh, psychiatrists are putting my patients on. And, you know, I've been practicing 27, 28 years now. And and seeing these people coming in as walking zombies, um, just looking sedated, very flat affect, recognizing that the psychotropics have done nothing but to blunt their brains and uh, make them unaware that they're depressed or anxious or even on this planet has made me realize that something needs to be done. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Hey, and welcome back to the podcast, everybody. And if you're a first-timer, welcome to the show. I'm happy to kick off the first show of the year with this great talk with Dr. Fred Grover Jr., He is truly a fascinating dude, and I'll introduce him in a moment. First, I would just want to say lately I've been getting uh, a lot of great feedback from listeners all over the country and all over the world, so I'm glad that people are listening and reaching out. That's amazing. Lately, I've had a couple of people, providers, reaching out and offering themselves as guests and connecting me with other guests. Also notably, the podcast has taken on a med student volunteer, the first one ever, uh, who is going to help with promotion, advertising, marketing, and also some guest recruitment uh, as well, all of which is super exciting for me. So shout out to Sierra for reaching out and getting involved. If you want to reach out, get involved, or just give any feedback, positive, constructive, whatever, or just reach out to me in any way, Please leave a comment or a review in your podcast player. Uh, you can connect on Instagram at Primary Care Podcast. Email the Primary Care Podcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get into it. Dr. Grover is rad, man. And it was really a pleasure speaking with him in his lovely office about so many topics. Um, he received his MD from. University of Louisville School of Medicine, completed residency in family medicine at the University of Colorado Family Medicine Program at Rose Hospital, where he was chief resident. He's board certified in family medicine, anti-aging and regenerative medicine, also in holistic medicine, and the winner of several teaching and professional awards. Our plan for this episode was to focus on two topics, sound therapy and ketamine therapy. And of course, we ended up talking about those in depth and then also so many more topics as well. We discussed psychedelic experiences, altered states of consciousness, ancient medical techniques, energy medicine, society's collective imbalance and loss of connection to nature. We talked about integrative medicine, different types of models of practice, physician burnout, world travel, the importance of spending time in nature, and many other cool topics. 
He is the author of a couple of books I want to direct you to check out, and I will link to them in the show notes. One is called Spiritual Genomics, a physician's deep dive beyond modern medicine, discovering unique keys to optimizing DNA health, longevity, and happiness. He actually gave me a copy of that book, and I haven't cracked it open yet, but I'm pretty psyched to get into it and start reading. Another book of his is called Awakening Gaia, the Lemurian Crystal Grid. So you can check those out from the links in the show notes or just search for them any way you please. I'm going to throw a couple of other links in the show notes as well to his website, revolutionarymd.com and also to alchemyofresonance.com, which we talked about in the show. Um, which is his website dedicated to energy healing and sound healing aspects of his practice. And I encourage you to check that out. And there's a video on there of him using one of the, uh, I think it's a Tibetan brass bowls um, on a patient of his. Um, So check out all of those links and uh, find out a lot more that we didn't have time to get into in this uh, extensive and comprehensive episode. All right, so by the way, thanks to Dr. Dave Gordon for hooking up this great guest. Um, And with no further ado, let's get to the episode. So everybody, please, let's get comfortable. Let's close our eyes. Take a couple of deep breaths. And please enjoy my chat with the great Dr. Fred Grover Jr. Absolutely. I'll try to give you a nutshell. Uh, grew up here in Colorado for the most part. Uh, lived out in California, then Texas for a little while. Recirculated myself back to Colorado and then did my uh, residency here uh, with University of Colorado at Rose Hospital. Um, have always had a strong interest in integrative medicine um, or alternative medicines, we used to call it. And uh, in my early career, I actually taught the integrative medicine elective for the University of Colorado residency. Uh, enjoyed that, um, explored integrative medicine in terms of doing the uh, fellowships in that, then did functional medicine, and have also uh, made a deep dive into anti-aging regenerative medicine. All of this on top of my foundation of family medicine. And I like to say uh, I practice what I call, you know, the GFM instead of the IFM, which is good effing medicine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a combination of integrative family medicine and regenerative medicine. Uh, also integrating in a lot of uh, mind-body therapies, which are critically important for our patients and for ourselves. Um, I'm an avid traveler. I think my travels around the world, I, I took a year after residency and traveled with my wife uh, to oh, about 30 countries and uh, did volunteer work primarily in Nepal, but also in uh, the Ukraine. And um, that experience really opened my eyes even more to the importance of integrative medicine and embracing uh, shamans in Nepal that I worked with and and uh, other practitioners that I came in contact while I traveled. Um, so that was another integral part of my interest in integrative medicine, which I brought back uh, when I re-entered the world, as I would say, the modern world of America after being in these third world countries uh, towards the end of 96. I spent uh, a few years at Kaiser 
And the Kaiser experience was definitely kind of a hamster, you know, on the wheel kind of experience. But I learned a lot, mm-hmm. paid off some student debt. Um, don't have any regrets, but it just didn't offer the depth and breadth of care that I wanted to offer my patients. It was very shallow Band-Aid-like medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, was offered a position at University of Colorado on faculty, so I did that for about five years. And as mentioned, ran the Integrated Medicine Elective, delivered babies, did a lot of procedural teaching at that time. And it was a good experience, but um, I really desired more time with my patients to do that deeper dive. So I moved on to private practice in 2005. Mm -hmm. And in that private practice, I was able to create what I really wanted, uh, which was, you know, 30 to 60 minute visits with that deeper integrated medicine dive with, um, you know, the ability to bring in regenerative medicine and um, live the life that I, I wanted to. I did insurance for a few years, but found that it didn't reimburse well enough uh, in this particular model that I've created. So I eventually went to more of a concierge model and have continued that uh, to now, 2022. So Okay. So yeah, it's been uh, <laughs> 17 years of, of the current style of practice, at least. Uh, maybe not the current um, uh, payment structure, but yeah, uh, it, with with your solo practice, exactly. And by doing the depth and breadth of my practice uh, in a concierge model, I think people feel like they're getting a lot of value there. Mm-hmm. If I was just doing a traditional concierge model, where I might say, "Okay, you can call me on my cell phone, and I'll get you in the next day," I just don't think that holds enough value to the majority of patients that are looking for something a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. uh, spending that kind of money, um, and because I'm passionate about it and because I have that um, depth that they're looking for, it's, it's thrived in a big way. Mm-hmm. And, what, do you, what do you mean by that last thing you said where if you did a traditional concierge model, which I don't, I don't know if people are familiar with, but oftentimes it's a pay by the month or a yearly fee, is that right? And then you get yeah. kind of unlimited access to the physician right. uh, where you can set up uh, visits or appointments mm-hmm. pretty regularly or just about any time you want because their slots are never filled and you have more time with them. But you said that doesn't hold a whole lot of value for a lot of people. Is that what you're saying? Uh, it depends, right? So mm-hmm. there's direct, um, what do they call it? The direct pay or the direct access model, I mm-hmm. what they call it. And that's where they bill insurance and then they have a monthly fee that's, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a month. I think that works well for a lot of people. It mm-hmm. gives them good access and people are comfortable with that. Um, for me, that wasn't a good model because again, I was still stuck in the insurance rut and not able to, um, provide the amount of time that I wanted to. Um, so I just do a cash only concierge practice, which, um, gives me greater flexibility and more time and, um, you know, just works better in general, mm-hmm. uh, for my patients. Uh, about how big is your patient panel? I only have about 300, mm-hmm. and um, that is a, a good number for me. You know, sometimes it's a little less, sometimes a little bit more. And, um, you know, depending on how I feel uh, in terms of the amount of workload, I might back off on it periodically as okay. people leave the program, move out of town, et cetera. But I, I think what you find in the majority of concierge practices is really more of a an access model, so people are able to get in. Uh, within the same week or the same day. What I'm providing is not only access, but 
um, availability to integrative medicine, functional medicine, and regenerative medicine. So there's a lot more on the plate compared to what they're offering. And and I know some concierge docs will say, oh, well, we do heart scans and you know some advanced lipid profiles. And to me, that's like, oh, that's no big deal. I've been doing those again right. since probably 06 or 07. Mm-hmm. I don't really consider that high-end care. I consider it to be more standard of care. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think for those of you who are physicians or residents and are interested in concierge medicine, you definitely have to be willing to pursue further education and offer a greater diversity of services to be able to attract in uh, clients to the type of model that I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. That was, we, You've already touched on a number of different directions I want to go, and I want to mm-hmm. be mindful of I have the tendency to try to get everything in, and I <laughs> might not be able to touch on all these very interesting topics in this one uh, interview, but yeah. uh, I want to I touch on a couple of things you just said there uh, or in this whole first intro, one of which is you said you were always interested in in integrative medicine kind of from it sounded like from an early age I kind of want to explore that and I also want to explore the last thing you just said which is pursuing further training to get into the concierge uh, field of medicine integrative medicine anti-aging stuff all these things are not necessarily things that are taught within the standard model of conventional training so I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that, having been in both worlds, having been in the standard American family doctor role and faculty on uh, uh, an associate program director, I believe, mm-hmm. on um, at a family medicine residency. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of wanted to lay that out up, up front so we can kind of attack it together. Yeah. Uh, can we go back and um, talk about your where it all first started for you in terms of your, the first twinkle in your eye for integrative medicine? I think my interest in integrative medicine is deeply rooted in my connection to nature. And so I've always been deeply into to hiking, to kayaking, just to connect into nature. Um, you know, now I do a lot of meditative walks in the woods, listening to mantra music, and then sitting down, grounding myself out. Um, feeling the energy of, of Gaia. And I, I feel it's such a primal resonance that we've lost as humans and we're in this disconnected, dysfunctional, divided world at this point, partly because we're not connected to nature and we're um, becoming uh, um, imbalanced as a, as a result of it. And and I've always maintained that connection with nature. You know, here in the wintertime, I've even been gone out uh, cross-country skiing and um, trying to connect in that way in the deep woods. And I feel that the majority of us don't have that luxury or maybe not the interest or the foundational interest in nature to be able to to maintain it at a level that is uh, going to give you the, the mindful benefits. So I would say nature naturally connected me to okay. integrative medicine, which then made me uh, pursue, you know, how nutritional therapies, herbal therapies, acupuncture, uh, energy medicine, Reiki, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, et cetera, have all interested me. And I've explored all of those different areas. I'm I'm kind of a, um, you know, big explorer, whether it's traveling around the world, 
um, or experiencing different types of integrated medicine therapies. And <laughs> I have not done colonic therapy. That's not on my list, but <laughs> I've probably tried everything else. Okay, and sure. uh, I, I think it's good for people to get outside of their box and, and do something beyond you know, their comfort zone uh, and see if it may offer something uh, deep and rewarding for them. Definitely. And was that something where, I guess, were all of those or some of those aspects of medicine something that you understood that you wanted to be involved with while you were either a pre-med or going through medical school or going through your residency training? All of, all of those aspects of training and education don't involve Reiki and don't involve sound therapy and don't involve mm-hmm. so many of the things that you do in, in medicine now. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about getting more training in those fields and pursuing them intellectually after residency, but was mm-hmm. that something that you knew you wanted to do back in, in those days? You know, a lot of my interest in meditation came while I was in Nepal mm-hmm. and uh, going to some of the monasteries and, and doing some of the meditation classes mm-hmm. they offered. So that was a a big initial aha, this could really offer something for me moving forward in my professional career and within the office as well. Um, during my residency, I really didn't have much opportunity at the time to get any integrative medicine or experience any alternative medicine treatments, unfortunately, which is one of the reasons I was passionate about offering that for uh, residents while I was on faculty, and then I continued to offer it to medical students here in my office and residents that want to uh, shadow me and, and see what we do here you know, in terms of sound therapy and whatnot. Um, so I think it's, you know, you dip your foot in the pool with some of these mindful-based activities, whether it's something as simple as yoga or meditating in Nepal or booking an appointment to get, you know, needled up for treatment of a migraine headache or back pain, whatever you might have. Or maybe it could be you get needled up with acupuncture just for simple balancing um, of your meridians or chakras, as we call it in Ayurvedic medicine. Um, but I, I think you... You have to be uh, bold and proactive to uh, learn about some of these therapies. It's nothing to be really afraid of. It's just motivating yourself and finding the right practitioners to experience these um, amazing therapies. Acupuncture's been around for three or four thousand years now. Mm-hmm. Um, how long has modern medicine been around? Not right. quite that long. Yeah, so, like a hundred uh, years. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's got something to it if it's got that kind of longevity. Um, Ayurvedic, uh, I think, has a lot of promise as well, and many people are experiencing that uh, to be beneficial for them too. Very cool, very cool. So you don't you don't feel like there was a necessarily like a big disconnect during your traditional residency training and uh, maybe your time at Kaiser. Um, you said there was usefulness to that. You helped you know pay off some of your student debt and mm-hmm. and things like that. And it taught you a good deal about the American medical system, it sounds like, uh, and maybe even motivated you to pursue the things that you wanted to pursue more in medicine. Is that like, just yeah. for instance, your time at Kaiser, you know, can you kind of speak to that and kind of what that was mm-hmm. like um, for you? Yeah. Well, you know, I took that year off after residency, which was kind of a bold move. Um, but I was so burnt out, you know, back when I did residency, we were pretty much every third night call, mm-hmm. you know, delivering babies all night, then in clinic all day, they didn't give us a day off mm-hmm. after we'd been up all night. 
it was pretty brutal. And so I was like, I really need a, a breather between uh, going to work and finishing my residency. So I rented out my house uh, to some medical students for the year, got around the world ticket, um, and then just hit the the trail, you know, with a backpack and uh, stayed in hostels and other cheap places and, and explored. And it was interesting. I was so wound up from being in residency that it probably took me a month before I could actually get to a place where I could just sit and chill and read a book because I felt like I had to be doing something. Yeah, um, but It really had mucked me up um, just from the high intensity of, of residency. So it was a, a year to kind of um, reflect, reboot, again, connect to nature, connect to some of my integrated medicine interests as I volunteered in these remote villages of Nepal, and um, to have magical experiences. You know, I was floating down the Nile, uh, seeing the Egyptian ruins. I was backpacking the Annapurna circuit in Nepal. I was scuba diving the Red Sea, connecting to beautiful sections of reef, um, you know, surfing in different areas, connecting to water. Um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. So I, I save all the things, you know, I've done in my life. I thought that was kind of a crazy thing to blow out with all my debt that I had already accrued from medical school and, and uh, to go in debt more for years. I traveled, but as I reflect back on it, that was the smartest, best thing I ever did in my life was taking a year off to travel. So if any of you ever have an opportunity to take a sabbatical to travel, hopefully between pandemics, um, <laughs> I, I definitely encourage it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, I, I think uh, just you, it sounds like you went to just about everywhere in the in the world, uh, or at least every uh part of it and right now you're you're sitting underneath a big picture of a place in Angkor Wat yeah uh, is that somewhere you went yeah that's the uh the temple of Angkor Tom which is next to Angkor Wat mm-hmm. and um loved going there I went there on a spiritual meditation retreat and uh that was about a two-week retreat a couple of years ago and oh, wow. um I, it was one place I missed on that round the world trip I didn't do Cambodia and Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, so I was like all right I gotta make up some <laughs> lost time and, and explore that. Uh, it's an amazing place that as you dive a little bit deeper into it, you can connect to the, the energies of the place. And on a, a more fascinating level, you can look at uh, archaeoastronomic alignments of the sites of Angkor Wat as it connects to the Draco constellation. And then also just look at the architectural features that are um, beyond you know, what we could build in this modern day. And I've seen that in other impressive, you know, particularly megalithic sites like Puma Punko and Tewanaco in Bolivia, mm-hmm. uh, Machu Picchu, um, uh, Sakse Woman outside of Cusco, of course, mm-hmm. the Egyptian pyramids. Um, so I encourage everybody to explore some of these uh, marvels of the world and ponder them. Yeah, it's very. I mean, it's it's incredible. I I've been to some of those places, um, Angkor Wat in Cambodia. It was it blew my mind, and I'm kind of a little bit of a skeptic, or maybe a a hater, or uh, a curmudgeon of some <laughs> sort. Where before uh, me and my wife went in 2014, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't expect to be so blown away. And you know, the conventional wisdom is you need at least three days there. Uh, to be touring the different sites of this 
old uh, ancient uh, village, or I should say more like a huge metropolis, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that there wasn't even enough. I didn't even scratch the surface, even though I went to you know the places in there, the picture right above you and uh, many more. It was truly incredible. Yeah. Um, it sounds like your travels have taught you a lot about what you want to pursue in medicine. Did you kind of learn things throughout the world or your world travels, uh, specific things that you wanted to take back with you to your medical practice? I have, you know, uh, one interesting thing that just came to mind, as you mentioned, that was uh, one of my trips to Peru where I did the Inca Trail and then did my first ayahuasca um, ceremony there. And that was years ago. Um, Using that amazing plant medicine from the Shipibo Indians of the Amazon, I had kind of an out-of-body experience where I was able to look down and see my meridian lines and recognize that, oh my God, acupuncture is for real. It is addressing these particularly particular uh, lines on my body that uh, they've identified thousands of years ago. And it made me ponder, okay, did they identify these in a transcendental psychedelic state or how do they get the information to know where they exist? Um, not only that, but I could see um, the seven chakras. And so I got a validation and a psychedelic experiment, experience deep in Peru, um, you know, using a Shipibo shaman medicine. So I think there's uh, this knowledge that exists in almost a different field of energy that we can tap into through our super consciousness, uh, particularly in these altered states, and bring that into our higher level of knowing as a physician and a healer. And it's not that you need to become an acupuncturist or an Ayurvedic practitioner, but you need to have awareness that these systems exist and that we do have uh, imbalances energetically that can contribute to disease, uh, whether it be physical or mental. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm totally down with that. And I think the medical community is um, more accepting of these ideas that you're talking about and it seems like the world in which you practice uh, seems to be more and more accepted in the in the modern American medicine realm I know for instance I was just talking to our mutual friend David Gordon who was a guest on the show uh, to about two years ago uh, about the state of integrative medicine and functional medicine in residency training and I was telling him that I know at least a couple of residencies in Denver that are incorporating integrative medicine further into their curriculum. I didn't know they adopt the uh, um, Andrew Weil integrative medicine curriculum from University of Arizona, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you were, you know, uh, ahead of the ahead of the, the game on on doing exactly that and incorporating integrative medicine into residency training. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's becoming more and more something that more providers will be able to just get within their standard training um, and mm-hmm. and just at least be exposed to it. And like you said, just at least have a awareness that these things exist in their real treatments and they can be uh, utilized for patient benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, 
I think many of the residents can go on and do Andrew Weil's class out in Arizona, Tucson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit more garden variety, integrative medicine. My particular path has been to draw from multiple different tribes rather than just being in the Andrew Wild tribe. And I think by mm-hmm. um, following your passion and connecting with different groups that uh, will give you that level of education that you're looking for, you'll be able to morph together something that has um, a little bit more meaning to you. Um, I've even done studies in shamanism under... Um, uh, Don Oscar Miracasada, the Pachacuti Mesa tradition, and mm-hmm. um, he's an amazing uh, Peruvian who lives in Florida now, who has taught me a lot in terms of energy medicine and you know the Andean cosmos and all. And that's you know not something that all of the listeners are going to resonate with, but it's just an example of something that's you know very outside of the box that can be brought into your awareness and um, help you more on an intuitive level in terms of healing your patients. Okay, great. Yeah, I would like to kind of transition into talking about some of these energy medicine topics. Uh, If now's a good time to make that transition, some things that we wanted to talk about today are sound therapy and uh, also using uh, ketamine as a a therapy. Um, Maybe let's start with sound therapy and and we can talk about some other... um, related topics to that in within the realm of energy medicine um is that kind of how you think about this world is energy medicine and sound therapy is um a part of that and uh and while you're kind of giving me that answer Mm -hmm. if you can uh, uh maybe define sound therapy for us and how you use it yeah absolutely um sound therapy really became something that i was more aware of on a more recent trip in uh, 2000, I guess that's not that recent, but mm-hmm. um, I was climbing up to the Mount Everest base camp with my father and some residents actually that we were um, bringing up to work at a medical camp outside of Kathmandu um, near a town called Berbisi. Anyway, I bring this up because I was near uh, Amanda Blom. If those of you who know Nepal, uh, there's a beautiful monastery called Tengboche. And I was invited into a meditation with all these monks, and and they did their uh, deep um, kind of Om Mani Padme Om Om Mani Padme Om chanting, uh, combined with the horns and drums, and we all went into this trance of altered state, almost like we'd you know had some mushrooms or something crazy like that. It was uh, amazing, and here I am at about fifteen thousand feet, surrounded by all these powerful peaks resonating through these monks surrounding me, uh, feeling the immersion of vibrational resonant energy in my body and clearly in my mind. So I was being sonically entrained by the sounds of of monks chanting and and some of their instruments. It was then that I kind of recognized in 2000 that, wow, I need to add this into my my toolbox of of treatment and the practice and, and how does that look? Um, Tibetans use uh, healing bowls or the Tibetan uh, singing bowls as we call them and so I started by just bringing in um, Tibetan bowls into the practice and chiming those on uh, you know, somebody's belly for example when they're feeling anxious put it over their third chakra which is you know, kind of in their upper abdomen and see if that would give them some relief and amazingly they, they loved it um, I expanded and learned how to use um, 
different tones of bowls, tuning forks. And then I eventually decided to get um, sound therapy tables, which are basically massage therapy tables. We have a couple of them here in the office, which I just showed Ross one of them, that have these little tiny speakers that will vibrate the the wood on the table in a resonant way like you uh, resonate a cello. And we can play mantra music like that sung by a, a monk or didgeridoo, which has a nice tone for sound healing, or even... Um, you know, frequency-based sounds like you would hear from Jonathan Goldman and and other um, sound healers. So by deploying sound in the office, I've offered an ability for people to get out of their their minds to be one with the sound. We're all it's always hard for many to to meditate. They're kind of in this monkey mind, but with sound therapy it distracts them enough while at the same time giving them kind of a vibrational massage through the sound that they're able to relax and go into this deep state of meditation. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I just saw um, kind of the, uh, seems like I saw the basic setup. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see you uh, using any of the Tibetan bowls or um, tuning forks. Uh, maybe I can uh, um, link to, uh, or I, I, maybe I can I- insert something uh, into the podcast of uh, you know, like an example of what that would sound like uh, yeah. right, right here. Um, you know what would work well, Ross, is yeah. I have a website dedicated to sound healing. Oh, really? And it's called alchemyofresonance.com. Okay. Alchemyofresonance.com. So if you go there, you can see me doing sound bowl healing. I think I've got a few videos, a lot of pictures oh, wow. in there. That's great. Yeah. I'll, and we'll direct people there. I'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah. And, and then I also have... Um, uh, links to studies on semantics. Semantics is a study of the geometry of sound. And we feel that by creating geometry through through sound, particularly good, clean, resonant sound, whether it be a cello, a didgeridoo, mm-hmm. um, a chanting voice, that you can create these sacred geometrical shapes in your body, which then ripple through your body, almost like a pebble dropping in a lake. Um, but with a more snowflake pattern or maybe a pattern of a turtle shell. And with that sound resonating through your body, you're able to balance your chakras and and just feel uh, healthier and and more in alignment. And that's that's what the aboriginals uh, do with their their didge. They run it up and down your body to balance uh, your chakras. Um, that's what we do with healing bowls, uh, Tibetan bowls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we do in the Tibetan monasteries with chanting. Instead of um, you know having to apply a bowl to your chest, the chanting itself, the resonant frequency radi- radiates through your, your chest and through your body. And so when you say something like Om Mati Padi Om, that frequency will actually go from your root chakra up to your crown and back to your heart. So and actually have a resonant flow um, through various mantra sounds. And as they chanted 108 times with their mala beads, they um, go into that beautiful state of, of balance and, and meditation. Hmm. So, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm a little bit ignorant to exactly what balancing chakras means. I've listened to enough Jack Kornfield and Ram Dass to get the <laughs> general concept, but can you... Um, you know, be a little bit more specific about what that means, or is it different for each 
patient, each person, each time. Um, yeah. What, what do you What are you exactly doing in balancing someone's chakras? Yeah. For example, if someone's gone through a breakup with a partner, um, they feel that trauma, that emotional sadness, and they may have a closure of their heart chakra, and they just don't want to connect with anybody. Uh, they want to be cold. They want to be uh, regressed and and not talk to anybody. Um, so what can we do to, to open a heart chakra? Um, we can chant uh, mantras that can help open a heart chakra. We can do breath work uh, to help release some of the pain uh, from that difficult situation. Um, and we can resonate uh, a bowl that is like an F sharp, which would be heart chakra frequency. And by doing this, it helps to kind of relax that tension in the heart chakra area, which is, of course, where your heart is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just helps the individual uh, get back into flow, open up and come to a, a place of, of love. Now, a lot of it may be uh, taking place over a period of time where they've got to come to a state of uh, letting go, feeling compassion and um, forgiveness for that person. But I, I think by deploying sound therapy, breath work, and other therapies, we're able to get people to that state of release. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about PTSD and veterans and the hugely high suicide rate Mm -hmm. that is happening amongst vets. Why are they dying? Well, because they're being put on SSRIs and they're not balancing their heart chakras and and other things, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Why are they now having breakthrough therapy with MDMA? Because MDMA is a heart opening medicine that helps them release that shit that they may have seen when their buddy was blown to pieces by an uh, improvised explosive device, etc. So by allowing them to go deeper and to release the traumas, then they're out of their suffering. By blunting them with an SSRI or a medication, they're trapping it in their body and then, you know, they may reach for a gun and, and end that suffering. Um, unfortunately. So I think as we're more attuned to chakras as physicians, we're going to do that deeper healing. Um, part of the process of chakra balancing is not just opening the heart chakra, but you know maybe it's the third chakra, which is a fear chakra. Maybe it's uh, connecting our root chakra to nature again, as I mentioned, you know, meditating in nature. And then the other part is being able to flow energy from your root chakra to your crown chakra and then to connect it to the the cosmos through your crown and then to bring your root into connecting to Gaia. So I know this sounds woo-woo and crazy to a lot of you, (laughs) but I will tell you it's for real. (laughs) And I encourage you to study it and understand it because it is like the deepest healing realm that exists on this planet and has been, uh, again, explored for thousands of years but forgotten by modern medicine practitioners. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I relate to exactly what you just said there um, because so the other day when I was, uh, when I booked you on the podcast for later in the week, just as uh, three, four days ago, I'm doing my dishes and I start to uh, uh, 
research a little bit about sound therapy and I pull up a TED talk on sound therapy. I don't remember who it was or when it was from. I can uh, maybe try to link to it in the show notes as well. Uh, But my point is, it's a gentleman talking for a couple of minutes, introducing the concept of sound therapy, and then he says, okay, everybody, I want you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and just kind of relax as much as you can, and I'm going to play some sound, uh, I think it was Tibetan bowls Mm -hmm. uh, for you. And so I stopped doing the dishes, and I just stood up straight and this was you know maybe not even definitely not the ideal environment for this to happen but uh, I just thought I'd give it a shot close my eyes took a breath and relaxed and uh, he started playing the bowls and instantly I felt something kind of pretty deep and deep but also broad it the the vibrations the sound, the frequencies that he was playing with just a couple of simple taps on some Tibetan bowls were surprisingly powerful just even in that instant. And again, I didn't even set it up in the, the most beneficial way or you know, <laughs> the most proper way. Yeah. So I can uh, relate to that where it went from kind of skeptical or at least uh, interested to, oh my Lord, this is something, you know? Yeah pretty quick and then of course the TED talk devolved into him kind of jamming on a guitar with uh, his friend on a cello but the, <laughs> uh, the most powerful part was definitely the uh, initial um, sounds that I was hearing from him uh, him uh, making those uh, Tibetan bulls sing. Yeah they're amazing I, I've worked a lot with um, crystal bowls. I probably have just as many crystal bowls as I do Tibetan bowls. Mm-hmm. Tibetan bowls oh, I are, guess I'm not sure which one I was hearing yeah, it, yeah I'd have to listen to tell you um, but yeah the the traditional Tibetan ones are, are brass or kind of a brass amalgam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the crystal bowls are, are really nice. You'll see those. Those are either white crystal or they can be colored crystals. Um, I've seen which those are too. very nice. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, the crystal ones have a little bit more um, lasered in tone, whereas you get some variations in tonal values with the other okay. Tibetan ones. But I think they're all very beneficial and um, particularly if the listeners are able to have a bowl placed on their chest and and um, spun on their chest and uh, resonated um, or on their belly, then you get that direct flow of energy from the bowl mm-hmm. rather than just hearing it in the room. Mm. Some people will do, you know, a gong bath. Gong baths are very powerful too, particularly if you've got 15 or 20 gong baths going. Um, that's something to experience. But again, the gongs are going to surround you. They're not going to be applied to your physical body. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned kind of anxiety being a indication for this treatment. You mentioned PTSD and mm-hmm. uh, maybe depression um, mm-hmm. and suicidal ideation being good reasons to enact this treatment. Um, I also saw another TED Talk. I guess I'm on a TED Talk kick about mm-hmm. some, um, somebody. Um, it was He's actually a musician who started researching or getting involved in research of sounds actually destroying different bacteria, uh, bacterium, bacteria, mm-hmm. and, um, and as well, cancer cells as well. So I just kind of mm-hmm. wanted to hear your thoughts on the different, um, you know, uh, medical issues that can be treated with sound therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, at first I was thinking it might just be these kind of intangible medical issues or diseases, 
depression, mm-hmm. anxiety sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm uh, getting a little bit more interested in how it, its application in cancer treatment, uh, at least in, in vitro, mm-hmm. um, is that something that you use for kind of more tangible uh, illnesses? Or um, is that something that's still being studied? Um, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? It is. I mean, it, we use sound in, in medicine already quite a bit. So, for example, you have a big kidney stone and you want to undergo lithotripsy. Lithotripsy is an external corporeal shockwave therapy, which is a sound wave that's very intense and radiates to the pelvis of your kidney and shatters that calcium oxalate um, stone there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we use ultrasound, right? Uh, yep. To be able to look at your gallbladder or wherever, you know, echocardiograms, yeah. uh, you name it. I use um, extracorporeal shockwave therapy here for treatment of musculoskeletal conditions. If somebody has a rotator cuff tendonitis, I can break it up with a ECWT. Hmm. Um, I have a stores device, and it's basically a ceramic tip that has a piston that hits it, and the sound waves break it up. I'll use it for plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis. I'll even use it for erectile dysfunction. Why? Because it helps with uh, stimulating angiogenesis and regeneration and mm-hmm. <laughs> in that part of our body. Yeah. Uh, I even have one that works for women um, for improved clitoral sensitivity. So you can use sound for everything from bringing up kidney stones to sexual medicine to musculoskeletal medicine. Okay. And then getting back to the old school. We use sound for balancing the chakras, as mentioned. Mm-hmm. Now, can it be used to kill viruses or bacteria? Probably. I just don't know, you know, how effective it is because you're dealing with, you know, a whole body to, to be able to attenuate it and, and take out a virus. I think the, the very old Rife machine, as they call it, was kind of a frequency-based um, device that, you know, a lot of people... Um, criticized it, it was taken off the market, but it probably had some level of impact um, in terms of treating viruses and bacteria. Uh, I'm not an expert on that machine, but that's just an example mm-hmm. of what's been out there. Okay. Yeah, I think that was something that was mentioned in the TED Talk is that one of the problems is you know being very uh, directed with the treatment and not obviously doing what um, you know something like chemotherapy does is like also kill some of your body's cells instead of just the cancer cells. So how do we do that? Well, they were kind of at least stating that they were in the early stages of uh, getting some good results with that, but I'm not sure the actual mechanism of how they're doing that, of uh, killing just the bacteria within the context of a human body or just cancer within Mm -hmm. the context of an otherwise healthy body. I think it could be uh, something that could augment, um, you know, the treatment of an infection, for example, if a gal came in with pyelonephritis and I started her on antibiotics and um, was still having some pain and discomfort there. I could have her lay face down on a massage therapy table and then, um, you know, resonate a bowl over her kidneys. And that would help, as we know, improve blood flow, lymphatic flow, and mm-hmm. might improve the delivery of the antibiotic and help her resolve some of that pyelonephritis. It's not going to be a, you know, single therapy cure, but I think it could augment um, you know, what's going on in terms of, uh, in addition to the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there peer reviewed research on this topic? On sound healing itself? Um, there is some peer reviewed research, mainly looking at, um, improvements in heart rate variability and the company HeartMath, which is, 
out west uh, has looked at sound in terms of how it can help people relax, lower cortisol levels, and and heal better mm-hmm. uh, postoperatively. So yeah, I, I would say I, I don't think you're going to find a say a randomized controlled trial on it. Yeah, but they've been able to find objective data looking at HRV and, and wound healing. Okay. Um, so I think sound healing is for real. The problem is there's no money to be made off of it, like a new right. pharmaceutical. So. Sure. Who's going to go out there and and do a large trial? Is going to have to be a completely nonprofit group that's passionate about it to, right. to really go deeper. Yeah, sometimes I'm bothered by how innocent and naive I sometimes am because I'm I'm all on board and I'm like, oh, let's uh, fund uh, you know fund this research and then. You say something like, oh, yeah, but there's no money in it. And that's, so, you know, so much of uh, so many different aspects of medicine. Like, oh, yeah, it's never going to get funded in, in that in that way unless you uh, do exactly well, what you were just saying. It, it's really sad. I mean, the reality is when I started medical school, I think maybe half of the trials were funded by drug companies. At this point, I think it's 90 or 95 percent of all trials wow. are pharmaceutical Jeez. funded. So you can see there's going to be a killer bias towards drug-based therapies. Mm-hmm. Not only is there bias, but there's also you know an element of big pharma trying to take down many natural therapies, yeah. uh, many regenerative therapies. For example, stem cell therapies are widely available in Europe and Asia, but barely available here. Why? Because they don't want you to regenerate your cartilage. They don't want you to uh, right. feel better systemically. They'd rather have you on an expensive med for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the cold, harsh reality of, um, you know, American medicine. Yeah, and so you are in that world of uh, PRP and regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you're board certified in uh, anti-aging and mm-hmm. restorative. Is that the yeah. is that the yeah. right terminology? Yeah, I did the whole fellowship with the anti-aging regenerative medicine group there. So I have to be careful about what therapies I do, where I apply them, et cetera, because of all the regulations here, which is very unfortunate. Now, if I were, if I had the money and I could open a clinic in Grand Cayman, like many of these stem cell docs do, I'd, you know, do that. Okay. <laughs> Fly down there, scuba dive a little bit, and and do more of those therapies. But because I'm restricted, <laughs> I, I can't do a whole lot here in Denver. Yeah. And it's it's very unfortunate because I think that it could become much more affordable to the masses, but. Instead, you know, it's, it's not affordable because you got to fly to Europe, Asia, or the Grand Caymans, which is, you know, British-owned, um, to do these therapies. And as a result, there's a huge disparity in access to regenerative medicine. So I'm hopeful that, you know, our medical community will wake up to that and, and shift to greater availability and, you know, better prices on, on all these things. Yeah, do you see a future uh in that, uh, meaning, you know, not just Kobe Bryant and uh, Peyton <laughs> Manning flying to Germany to get uh, stem cells injected in their necks and knees, but uh, do you see American medicine going that way where it's available to uh, the common common person in uh, this country? I hope so. I think, without a doubt, the majority of Americans want it, right? Probably, if you were to ask nine out of ten people, they'd be for it, uh, except for those people that have the misinformation, thinking that you're killing, you know, unborn fetuses to get stem cells, which you're not. They're right. either coming from uh, the placental uh, tissue or the um, umbilical cord, mm-hmm. or from your own stem cells, which could be harvested from your 
bone marrow, right? right? Yeah. So if they have any clue of how it's harvested in an ethical way, they shouldn't have any issue with it. I think the big issue is big pharma and the profits that they fear they're going to lose as people are able to slow their aging, regenerate um, cartilage tissue, et cetera. Um, a lot of benefits in terms of brain health around regenerative medicine that could be deployed but are not deployed because of the limitations imposed by uh, profit, greedy, big pharma. And I don't want the viewers or listeners to think that I'm totally anti-pharma. You know, I prescribe medications here as needed, but um, there's an evil side to them and they're dominating the market in a way that is impairing our ability to get more comprehensive care compared to Europe and Asia. And, you know, if you look at our stats in terms of how we're doing health-wise and how much money we're spending, we're at the bottom of the list and we're suffering the most in terms of COVID is because we're a sick society that you know has to depend on medications rather than a society that is more proactive and engaged in regenerative medicine and preventative medicine therapies. Definitely. I think that's a, a big takeaway from uh, um, just talking to you right now is that uh, we are a very sick society. And uh, when you start from a lower baseline, it's harder to find health it's harder to get to that healthy place well and our whole model is a sick care model that's yeah. all they know and one of the reasons i left you know an insurance-based model was because when i would spend an hour trying to talk somebody into stopping smoking giving them smoking cessation counseling i wouldn't get paid anything mm -hmm. but when i put down a diagnosis of copd or lung cancer i was paid same thing with talking to somebody about weight loss and and how to do a ketogenic diet or you know, how to do interval exercise to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Would I get paid for that? Hell no. Right. Would I get paid for type 2 diabetes? Yeah, I would. So I was incented not to do anything to let them develop diabetes, to let them develop lung cancer, because those were ICD-10s that I could get reimbursed for. Yeah. Whereas if I did something in a preventative code manner, I was reprimanded and not paid for it. I was freaking um, not reimbursed for doing a pap smear once, you know, two days before a year. I was not reimbursed for taking a melanoma off a guy's arm because it was done during a physical. I mean, I can go on for days in terms of the unethical practices of insurance yeah. and how they have just mismanaged me as a, a good physician um, and my patients. And, you know, it continues to this day and has gotten uh, quantum leaps worse over the past decade. Yeah, I mean, just those two examples you just gave, the pap smear and the melanoma, that's, I mean, that's just horrible. That's, it's unbelievable. It's disgusting. You know, and, and I can tell you many other stories, you know, for example, infants that I've sent home to, uh, you know, higher altitude, like in Breckenridge, who needed oxygen. Um, the insurance company refused to cover oxygen because it was too expensive. And then the infant had to come down in an ambulance and be readmitted to a hospital because they would not cover oxygen. I mean, this is the kind of medicine that we're practicing here in the United States. And mm -hmm it is truly going to implode in the near future as a result of the pandemic and our continued uh, ridiculous ignorance around uh, preventative medicine. I'm totally with you. Do you have a, a solution in mind? I know you're actually pretty involved in policy, at least kind of at least on the local level, it seems like, just from reading your CV, uh, a little bit involved with um, Colorado Academy of Family Physicians, which is a kind of a political act, um, advocacy group and uh, doing the doctor of the day thing at, at uh, the state capitol. Um, 
having a little bit of that background and that mindset, yeah. what's where do we go from here from your uh, ideal world? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was very politically active. I helped get the tobacco tax here. Um, I did a lot on um, gun control initiatives even before Columbine happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone face-to-face with the head of the NRA. I, I mean, I've been pretty ballsy when it comes to my political actions. But what I've found is that it really didn't make much of a difference because these groups were paid off by big industries, corporations, by you know the NRA members, by um, all these uh, groups that are now paying off our legislators as we watch the dysfunction up on Capitol Hill. So I feel like it needs to be more of a citizen um, kind of revolution, you know, and I think we need to to rise up against what's happening, you know, to our democracy right now, to what's happening to our healthcare system, to what's happening, um, you know, in terms of uh, how we're interacting with each other. And, and I think if we don't wake up on a deeper level, spiritually, intellectually, um, I think our country doesn't have much longer. And I hate to say that and be <laughs> kind of negative about things, yeah, but that's a honestly, dude. I'm a I'm a big perspective guy and a deep perspective guy as well. And I think we're in trouble um, if we don't do something as a community of physicians and and try to right our system here. And and of course, you know, correct things uh, that are wrong politically in our country too. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to kind of make sure we get to the topic of ketamine because I know that's a big part of your practice, or it's, at least it seems like it uh, from my perspective and something that you wanted to talk about. Um, it's another therapy that is gaining traction and gaining mainstream approval over the last couple of years, it seems like. Um, kind of was it seemed like maybe a decade ago, super on the fringe of... Uh, being used in uh, the primary care setting or the addiction medicine setting or the um, uh, just mental health mm-hmm. setting. Uh, so talk to us about ketamine therapy. How do you use it? What are the different ways in which one can use it? And um, what do you use it for? And uh, Yeah. My interest in ketamine came in because I've seen so much lack of efficacy with the traditional SSRIs, SNRIs, Etc. And the cocktails of, you know, five psychotropics that uh, psychiatrists are putting my patients on, and you know, I've been practicing 27, 28 years now, and and seeing these people coming in as walking zombies, um, just looking sedated, very flat affect, recognizing that the psychotropics have done nothing but to blunt their brains and uh, make them unaware that they're depressed or anxious or even on this planet, has made me realize that something needs to be done. So pulling out all the stops that I can in terms of doing sound healing, meditation, lifestyle things, whether it's exercise, et cetera, and recognizing that it wasn't quite cutting it for some of my severely depressed patients, I became interested in ketamine. Ketamine is an interesting molecule. It's been around you know, since the 70s. It was even used in combat in Vietnam when somebody had their legs blown off. Uh, they could put them out with it and transport them to the, the hospital so that they weren't suffering too much. Mm. We eventually found out that it has all these benefits in terms of um, uh, treating depression and that even in four hours 
after an IV treatment with ketamine that you can actually reverse severe depression and prevent suicide, whereas a traditional antidepressant, you're looking at three weeks to get a subtle effect, if anything at all, right. and oftentimes some increased suicidality as per the black box on every SSRI. Right. So I was like, wow, maybe I could save some lives by doing ketamine, and I feel like I have um, by offering that in the clinic. And what I've really enjoyed doing is combining ketamine with sound therapy. So while they're on a sound table, which is resonating the music, deep in a ketamine journey, typically we do it intramuscular, uh, half milligram per kilogram, they're able to go into this state of bliss, <clears throat> this inward travel of recognizing where their traumas may be, what their depression is about. They have the self-recognition. They're able to do the deeper self-healing. And we're having just amazing results. I would say the literature uh, states about 70% efficacy of ketamine. Mm -hmm. The efficacy of an SSRI and SNRI is about 30%, mm -hmm. no better than placebo. Why are we prescribing antidepressants when they're no better than placebo? Yeah. Well, maybe they help with anxiety and making people not give a shit about being depressed, but they just don't cut it, in my opinion, in most cases. So mm -hmm. ketamine is a, an amazing therapy. The, the challenge with ketamine is after you've done several sessions with a patient, how do you maintain the efficacy of it? And we've been doing uh, kind of a sublingual ketamine for people once a week or so just to keep that medicine working. Mm -hmm. That's after the sessions, mm -hmm. uh, which after are the, IV infusions? IV if they're severely depressed, mm -hmm. suicidal, intramuscular if they're mild to moderate depression, mm -hmm. uh, and then sublingual for maintenance okay. or nasal can work. Yeah, I um, was actually talking to another uh, provider on the podcast, Dr. Andreas Edrick. This was probably about two years ago, I think December or November uh, 2019, he was on the show. talking, And he's a uh, family medicine trained um, addiction medicine uh, provider, and he was talking to us about intranasal uh, mm -hmm. ketamine, and that's how he, at least at the time, was using it in his practice. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is, a, oh, is that a way that you use it in your practice, yeah, or is that a way all, that other people all do? patient preference, yeah. so okay. the nasal kind of burns, as you would imagine, yeah. um, uncomfortable, but then the sublingual kind of tastes <laughs> nasty. So uh, okay. we have the pharmacist flavor it with raspberry, mm -hmm. so it's not too bad, but... Okay. Whatever they prefer right. is fine. And I, I think a once, twice a week works very well for the majority of patients in terms of maintaining it. And then we may bring them in, you know, once a month to do an intramuscular and IV therapy to give them a little bit of a booster there too. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So we do integration. We talk to them right after the session. And then a week later, we encourage them to be connected with a therapist to follow up with a psychiatrist if they have a psychiatrist that's working with them as well. Okay. We want it to be a team-based approach. Okay. So yeah, you kind of just laid it out right there, but maybe pretend, can we pretend that maybe I'm a patient, I'm coming into you for severe depression, it's been resistant to uh, SSRIs for a number of years, I maybe tried ECT, which I know is another thing that people do for Resistant uh, treatment resistant depression, um, and now I'm coming to you trying to get involved with ketamine therapy. Mm -hmm. What are you gonna tell me about ketamine and and how um, 
how do you set me up for success with it? Well, I would do some, you know, surveys, do a BAX, um, et cetera, to see what your depression level is, make sure you're currently not suicidal. Mm-hmm. And we talk about, um, you know, how to um, call the hotline or us if, if that were to occur. Sure. If we're not, if you're in that mild to moderate, not suicidal, then, um, and knowing that you're treatment resistant depression, then absolutely ketamine would be top on my mm-hmm. list to discuss. I think we say, yeah, Ross, ketamine is a, a great therapy. It may offer some benefit for you, 70% chance we can get this reversed, and and then we'll have to maintain the, the therapy, you know, either orally or nasally. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefits of it beyond just the depression is it can help with brain-derived neurotropic factor, which actually helps with neural regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, People probably know that as BDNF. BDNF, yeah. And so BDNF has increased. Um, we've also found that um, because BDNF has increased, particularly if you were an older guy, say like, you know, mid-60s or so, I could say, you know, there's trials going on looking at the use of ketamine and the prevention of early Alzheimer's disease. So we hmm. may even have some regenerative benefits that we're doing now for you and your Wow. younger ages that may give you benefits moving forward down the road. So it's one of these molecules that not only helps with enhancing mood, but also helps in neural regeneration and neurogenesis. So that's one of the cool things about it. Now, beyond that, I, I want you to know that you're going to have this spiritual experience with it. And most psychiatrists are probably not going to mention that, but mm-hmm. it's a dissociative state to where you may find yourself in the stars and feeling like you're one with the universe. And I want you to let go and to flow into that beautiful space and to feel the love from the stars and and the world around you. And by doing that, you're going to have this deeper sense of connection to the universe and to the earth. And that can be just as healing as the simple pharmacological um, allopathic interpretation of ketamine. There's an element of psychedelic medicine and ketamine that takes you to the beyond beyond, which if we dose it appropriately and you're able to travel there, I think that can offer greater benefits than the simple mood enhancement. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. All that, there's a lot to unpack there. I feel like (laughs) I want to go in a number of different directions. Um, but so you were mentioning, uh, the psychedelic state that can be induced, that is going to be more with the uh, kind of higher dose, uh, either IV or IM versions of this drug. It probably wouldn't get you there if you were doing an intranasal, is that right? Or is it just uh, dose dependent? It's, yeah, it's interesting. Some people can have a little bit of the psychedelic effect with intranasal or sublingual. It's very subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, they may get a little geometry with it, but it's um, not nearly as prominent is what you get with the IM or the IV. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes at the starting dose of 0.5 mg per kilogram, we can get people into that psychedelic state. But other times it's a little higher dose, like a 0.7 or a 0.8 to achieve that. Everybody's a little different. So we start low and then we titrate to a point that helps them uh, let go and, and go into that that field of, of oneness, as I call it. Mm-hmm. I have a gal I just started treating a couple of weeks ago who has severe OCD to the extent that she's using her hand sanitizer like three or four times, even while the ketamine's 
uh, affecting her. Hmm. So I had to go up to a much higher dose to kind of um, disconnect her frontal lobe and her what we call the default mode network uh, to let her release. And talking to other ketamine practitioners, they have the same experience. So these people that are really uptight may need a little higher dose. They're kind of the people that go under with a birth set for their colonoscopy and they wake up <laughs> midway through oh, yeah. and need a much bigger dose from anesthesia too. So the same right. thing happens with ketamine. You have to kind of uh, personalize it based on their okay. response there. And so what is the psychedelic experience like? Um, what, what do people report? Yeah, a lot of it is feeling this deep state of connected to everything so your your heart chakra is opening you're going into the state of bliss you may just i've had patients say i am love i feel love i feel love for everything and it's this beautiful heart open uh experience that allows you to let go of all the shit that you're witnessing around the world you know whether it's the fire we just had in boulder here Mm -hmm. uh, or the crazy gunman you know, whether it's witnessing what's happening in our country, you let all that go. And by taking all that stuff in your cortical brain and your frontal lobe offline and going deeper uh, into your um, deeper brain structures, you're able to go to that more primal self and, and flow into oneness. And now oneness is a word that can be hard for people to understand unless they've worked with psychedelic medicine, um, recreational or in a medical setting. But to me, it is the ultimate state to flow into. And it's almost like a a near death experience. Um, And by going there, you're in this elevated state of bliss that is, in my opinion, the greatest opportunity for for healing. And it may be that an individual who are doing ketamine therapy for her in the office is only there for five or 10 minutes, but that short amount of time can be a game changer in terms of improving their mood. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's not just the biochemical effects of ketamine on the NMDA receptors or BDNF. It's the spiritual travel that I think has a deeper realm of, of healing. Very interesting. And so, so some of these, uh, Experiences are only lasting five, ten minutes at a time, or is that uh, what, what is the timeline for a treatment? It's an hour long, but when you go into that really higher level, high frequency mm-hmm. <laughs> state, yeah, um, that's probably five or ten minutes for most, and then they're off returning to planet Earth. You know, I, I kind of Sometimes I describe it as, you know, we're going to blast you off this planet. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't want people to see it as some kind of a recreational trip. It's really more of a mindful journey into your spiritual deeper self with the intention of healing um, depression, anxiety, etc. So we're not going to a party to trip out. We're going here to do the deep inward work and to heal depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever else may be lurking in our energy bodies um, and our minds that we need to clear. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about kind of the last two things you just said is, um, you know, do you think that it's, I guess, why does something like ketamine or some other substances as well seem to open people up to be able to do that, that inner work and that 
the deep and often difficult work. Um, and then another question I wanted to ask, you can kind of take whichever one first, is why do you think there is, uh, you know, such a deep disconnect between how the public or specifically the medical providing public <laughs> um, views psychedelics versus psychotropics? You kind of touched on a little bit of that earlier in how we're very uh, apt to use psychotropic medications and they're some of the most prescribed drugs in in the world but or at least in America how come we're so into them and not into other modalities that also work on the brain and the psyche and the mind um, and how can we be more open to the non-psychotropic non-pharmaceutical but still uh, you know chemical based yeah. Uh, treatments. That's a great question. I, I think a lot of it, of course, is the influence of big pharma. You know, you go to a family medicine meeting, any meeting these days, and they've always got a big presence. You know, be sure to visit our vendor area and, you know, give whatever garbage they want to, you know, yeah, give you or, sure. or, or prophesize about. Um, so we prescribe what we know about, and um, we're unfortunately, I don't want to say brainwashed, but, you know, that's, that's, all of what most people know, and even in medical school, the um, PhDs that are teaching pharmacology, of course, are you know being paid by big pharma to look at new drug therapies, immunologic therapies, etc. So, you're not going to have someone coming in with um, you know a generic medicine like ketamine that's already been out since the 1970s, or coming in to talk about MDMA or the use of LSD, you know, which was originally actually pharmaceutical by Sandoz, right? Mm. Um, or, you know, uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. So they just don't have a, a profit margin there to be able to pay the $20,000 to have an exhibit and to promote it. Um, and as a result, we have that filtered view of what Big Pharma brings to the buffet table. And it takes a curious mind uh, and somebody who's bold enough to be able to go out and learn and to explore, sometimes in a questionably legal way. Uh, for example, psilocybin is decriminalized here in Colorado. You can do it uh, without getting in trouble, but um, you know you have to be careful about um, you know how that's done, and obviously not sell that product. So I think that. As we move forward over the next couple of years in Colorado, psychedelic medicine is going to become more readily available as we're going into the Renaissance and we're going from decriminalization to legalization like we have with medical marijuana. I think it will offer so much more in terms of healing people of depression. We know that psilocybin uh, being utilized for microdosing or for larger doses for deep inward journey work is highly effective in the treatment of depression. If you haven't read the book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, make sure you read yeah, that. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've been meaning to. Cause yeah. I, I think it just came out this last year or something. And he does a great job. Yeah. Um, the MAPS Institute has been studying MDMA. Um, MDMA, you know, is a rave drug, unfortunately. A lot of these, um, you know, particular pharmaceuticals or plant medicines have some bad names, but there's a lot of good behind them if they're used in the right set and setting and with the right intention. So MDMA has been granted breakthrough therapy by the DEA for the treatment of PTSD. It is actually curing veterans completely of PTSD, 
you know, after they've tried 10 years of traditional therapies. So mm-hmm. I think I encourage everybody listening to really pay attention to psychedelic medicine and how it can heal you and how it can heal your patients and, and to look for opportunities for them to engage in that. There's facilitators so you don't have to be involved that can help with um, doing some of these things. If you don't want to do ketamine, that's fine. There's plenty of physicians um, probably in your community that you can refer to. And um, by offering that, I think you can really uh, prevent some suicides and help enhance uh, people's lives. I've been, I mentioned, uh, you know, physician burnout, and I thought, oh my God, you know, if there's one thing I would love to offer at some point this year, it would be for emergency room docs and ICU docs that are on edge, you know, from patients that are yelling at them because they won't give ivermectin while they're being put on a vent to just witnessing all the, the death and carnage every day. They need that deep inward dive. And if I could do a ketamine session just for a reboot to treat PTSD, mm-hmm. I could save some of their lives. I think we're going to see a lot of physician suicides in the next year. We already have. Mm-hmm. We've already uh, seen a huge uh, loss of the workforce where um, physicians my age who are, you know, very high in their game and, and really know what they're doing, who are just like, I'm done with medicine because we're burnt out from the bullshit of the pandemic, the lack of support we've had, you know, in terms of not being ready for this pandemic. And for God's sake, I can't even get sterile gloves half the time. Of course, I can't get test kits, et cetera. So mm-hmm. this whole, you know, lack of support from the government and from public health, I think has let many of us down and you know made us question what we're doing medicine for. So I think whatever I can do to help save the good docs that are left out there would be amazing. Whatever I can do to help prevent suicide amongst physicians and nurses and other providers, I I would love to have a role in that too. So Mm -hmm. you mentioned ketamine, um, you know, the idea of having a treatment and giving therapy via ketamine to ER docs and ICU docs. What else? Mm -hmm. would you do for them in a, in a perfect world? If you had access to all the ICU and ER docs and anybody else or and nurses and everybody who's burnt out, um, oh my God. what other things would you do in your, if you had all the resources in the world? If I had all the resources, you know, I'd take them to magical places. You know, maybe I'd, I'd take them to, you know, a beach in Costa Rica or Tulum or maybe to Peru and I would help them connect to nature and, connecting with nature, doing uh, mindful-based practices, whether it's meditation or yoga, combined with um, possible plant medicine, I think would give them the deepest healing available uh, on this planet, much more so than going into a shrink's office or a therapist's office and sharing uh, how their day went and what they're going to do to improve it. I I think there's so much that can be done uh, in the natural setting compared to, you know, a clinical uh, setting of uh, office with fluorescent lights. So that would be my ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Take groups of 10 to 20 and get the hell out of town. Okay. Um, I like it. And facilitate with uh, some local shamans there and uh, do sound healing uh, and mindful-based activities. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you uh, just mentioned, um, you know, psychiatrist or th- maybe therapist office and, and that kind of setting. Um but it also seems like you utilize that kind of debriefing um, and 
maybe a guidedness to these meditative practices. Um, you mentioned that with ketamine, that mm-hmm. you go through the experience and then you also kind of debrief it or discuss it and have a, a little yeah. session. Where we call it a integration. Integration, thank yeah. you. Integration is very important. And integration, whether it's integration after somebody's done psilocybin therapy or ketamine therapy, you know, for mm-hmm. a physician office, allows the individual to share what came into them during that experience. Mm-hmm. And so they may be like, oh my God, you know, I, I saw where I had this trauma as a, a child and, and I saw myself as a little boy, um, you know, being chased by, you know, somebody and, um, you know, assaulted and, and I, I was able to witness that and I was able to let go of it. And, and so you're able to kind of unpack that and help them process it um, rather than just leaving it there for them to process on their own. So I think that integration piece can be done by me. I feel like I've done enough psychotherapy here in the office mm-hmm. over the you know quarter century. Right. Um, or it can be a therapist, and I, I would definitely refer to a lot of therapists that are great in terms of unpacking um, psychedelic journeys, ketamine, et cetera. Um, psychiatrists, some are able to do that, but many are, are very much boxed into a traditional model and they don't want to deal with psychedelic medicine. Um, so I think you've got to um, find that team of people that can collaborate and provide that level of support. If you have a bipolar patient, it can be a, a much more complicated situation. So that's mm-hmm. where we're doing ketamine therapy. It can help with bipolar, with severe depression, of course, but you have to be aware of those. Unipolar depression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, unipolar. And then you have to be aware of their swings. And I think having the psychiatrist involved in case there's a crisis is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always want to keep them involved and, you know, be very transparent in terms of what we're doing. Yeah. Well, we're getting just uh, about uh, up against it with time, and I want to mm-hmm. be uh, mindful of your time and um, just kind of wanted to maybe uh, cruise to an end here by asking, let's say you are a therapist or you are a primary care provider in just the uh, most traditional or American sense of the word. You're not uh, involved in these types of therapies. How would you go about getting training in them? How would you go about getting a little bit more information? You mentioned MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, I think is what yeah is what their many syllables stand for. Right. Uh, MAPS is a great group, Rick Dobbins group. Um, they offer um, you know, a lot of uh, coaching in terms of doing integrative um, sessions for patients, uh, how to use the medicine. Mm-hmm. I train locally with a group called Prati out of Fort Collins on ketamine therapy. They're What's a that great called? group. Prati. Prati, P-R-A-T-I? Uh-huh, Prati. Okay. Um, and Prati uh, will give you experiential uh, sessions so you know what it feels like. You're able to... Um, then do treatments on your colleagues that are there and you do a lot of didactic work in terms of how the medicine works, how to dose it, how to deal with adverse effects, all those kinds of things. So it's really important to um, have that level of education. And to be able to do this therapy and have it covered by your malpractice carrier, you also have to be certified in in, um, ketamine therapy or or many of the different therapies, um, you know, that you may add into your Mm -hmm. uh, quiver of, services. So, um, yeah, MAPS, Prati, or whichever local group you've got in your state, I think can 
oftentimes uh, provide that. You can check with your local medical societies in terms of who's reputable uh, to get that education. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about so many different aspects of your life. I was just kind of reviewing in my head about all the different things we just talked about, everything from, uh, you know, Cambodia and Angkor Wat to uh, vibrational sound healing and ketamine and uh, politics. Yeah. Big pharma, everything in between, too. And provider burnout was another big topic that I, uh, I'm glad we hit on. All right. We covered a lot. It was awesome, Ross. Um, for those of you who want to learn a little bit more about sound healing in particular, but also connecting to nature, uh, my book, Spiritual Genomics, you can uh, go to spiritualgenomics.com, has uh, a ton of information on that with over 300 references. I spent three years writing that book. Um, you'll like that. And then if you're into spiritual adventure, I have a book called uh, Awakening Gaia, um, and you can find them both on Amazon. And um, yeah, it just gives you a little bit more of a dive into um, my weirdness and my interests and um, so many different things. I think, you know, to, to live a full life, you've got to explore all realms. And I encourage everybody to go big and, and broad and uh, be passionate about life. Otherwise, what are we here for? Definitely. You, you mentioned your weirdness. Do you consider yourself weird or your medical practice weird or your interests weird? Or is it just who you are and uh, society is what it is? Or how do you view yourself within the uh, space in uh, medicine? I would say, yeah, I, I like to consider myself as more uh, in a state of uh, embracing a, a renaissance and the ancient therapies of medicine, you know, whether it's the plant medicine, the psychedelic medicine, the mindfulness, etc. So embracing, uh, embracing Renaissance uh, theories, and then um, being more open minded and um, connecting to all that is, um, people will say I'm weird. And, and um, you know, or, you know, most people say, wow, it's just cool to see what you're doing. But um, I really think it's just about, yeah, living a full and passionate life and offering everything that you can to your patients that can help them heal. And by doing that deeper work, we can make it a better planet. Very cool. I love it. That was a good note to go out, go out on. So I, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Grover, and it was great talking to you. Yeah, likewise, Russ. Let's do it again. All right, I'm loving all you super fans who listen this deep into the podcast all the way to my outro. You guys are the best. Uh, Dr. Grover was the best. I thought it was such an uh, amazing conversation. He's such a, uh, an interesting guy with so many different elements to his practice um, that differ from the way that so many primary care, family medicine trained doctors practice that it's just so interesting to get to hear these elements of medicine that are, you know, a little bit foreign to me and probably most people. Um, so, you know, that being said, we talked about a lot of things and a lot of things I, I feel like are still left on the table to talk about with him. So many elements of his practice uh, of anti-aging, longevity, holistic medicine, regenerative and restorative medicine, uh, 
aesthetic dermatology as part of his practice, holistic medicine, and otherwise talking about different models of practice, which is something that I want to investigate on this podcast in the new year. So much to get into. We'll try to have Dr. Grover back sometime. Uh, in the meantime, I hope everybody takes good care of themselves and the loved ones around them, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. Better just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be Learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now it's showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. But I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden. Plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain. Protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey, baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road. Going inch by inch, don't sprint. Take it slow, protect your soul, travel long and far, but make sure to come home. Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going and gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so big. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchange is contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor patient relationship is formed. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.